Science Talk will begin after this short message. Hey all, I'm hoping you'll join me in a step back into the past. A past where you, pa, ma, grandma, and grandpappy might head down to the local state fair to enter what was once called a fitter families competition. And these were not about athletics. They were held in the name of eugenics. Families would happily line up to be judged on their breeding just like livestock. My name is Brian. And I'm Andrea. We're from Base Pairs, the official podcast of Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. And there's some huge new science that's making this unsettling American history an urgent issue. More on that later in the episode. Stay tuned. Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on November 27th, 2017. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... You can't really guess who's hypnotizable or not, but it turns out this guy is, and so he goes right under. I mean, he was awake, he was conscious, but he couldn't feel the nurses scrubbing out his wounds. Now, this is something we need to understand. That's Eric Vance. He's a freelance journalist who describes himself as, quote, a native Bay Area writer replanted in Mexico as a non-native species, end quote. He's a frequent contributor to Scientific American and as a resident of Mexico City was on the scene to cover the September Mexico City earthquake for us. His first book is Suggestible You, The Curious Science of Your Brain's Ability to deceive, transform, and heal. We're talking about things like hypnosis, false memories, and placebos. We were both at a recent conference and discussed the book. Give us the general outline of what you're dealing with in the book. And I do understand that you come, there's a, there's a personal aspect to where you come from this subject from. Absolutely. Well, thanks. I mean, and, and uh, um, I think this is a topic that really um, resonates with a lot of different people. Uh, and and the, to- the, story, the book is called Suggestible You. And the premise is that we are all uh, suggestible, gullible, uh, malleable creatures. And that and that's really underlines you know who we are. Um, and I wanted to write a book that explored all the different ways that that what Sometimes what we think is true and what we truly believe is true isn't true. And it, and it started really with my childhood as a, as a Christian scientist. And I, I didn't, um, uh, Christian scientist is a religion that uh, it's faith healing. You don't go to doctors. I didn't go to a doctor until I was 18 years old. And um, I eventually got into science and then after that science writing. But I, I, I maintained this curiosity about the things I had seen in my faith healing community growing up. And, uh, and I always wondered what drove the healings that I saw? And that's, I think that's important to realize is that uh, whether you're talking about um, homeopathy or uh, traditional Chinese medicine or faith healing or any of these sort of um, uh, the, 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 the treatments and the alternative medicine that, that I talk about in the book, these people aren't crazy. They're doing these things because they, they work, because they, they make their lives better. Or, um, or they appear to work. And certainly enough to like create a burning curiosity in me as to exactly what's going on. Uh, and that's really what kicked this all off. Um, and it turns out there's actually a couple other former Christian scientists in this field, that, you know, the scientists that are working on this also, and they have the same questions I did, which is that, you know, they, they've glimpsed some of these things and, and that you just, you can't help but wonder what's going on. Um, and that led me down kind of a rabbit hole that lasted for about five years uh, as, I, um, as I saw sort of the, the connections between all these things. And the connections in my mind is really its suggestibility and its expectation. And that's at the heart of my book is um, your brain is at its core. It's a prediction machine. And this is something that, you know, 
artificial intelligence people have been saying for a long time. <clears throat> um, and everything it does all day long is creating predictions to make life easier and, and to use the past to uh, apply to the present in order to predict what's about to happen. Right. We um, don't even need the past. I know uh, maybe I'm hardwired for it or I've, I have not personally experienced falling off a cliff. Right. But I know not to... to I know to try not to do it. Yeah, my uh, my one year old baby has not gotten that lesson, so I think that's also <laughs> an experience kind of thing because he just crawls off whatever he sees. Um, but this is this is what our brain does, and what that what and in the process of doing that, it creates it's it's an expectation generator. It creates these expectations, and what's interesting about them is when your expectation and reality don't match, um, sometimes the brain will step in and make expectation reality. And, and the, greatest, the easiest example of this is, um, is with pain. And I, one of my first reporting experiences, I, uh, I got electrocuted in this, in this chair for half an hour or so. Uh, and every time um, I saw a green light, I got a small shock. And every time I saw a red light, I got a large shock and went back and forth. And this is a researcher named Luana Koloka, an amazing researcher at Maryland now. Um, and I got, I mean, at the point where that red light would go off and I'd be like, oh my God. I mean, it was a strong shock. My foot would twitch. On the last round, it felt like maybe the green one had been turned up a tiny bit, but it was like a harder pinch, but not, not that much. And she came in and she said, uh, you know, nice job. Um, on that last round, we gave you the big one every time. But depending on which color you saw, you felt it differently. I felt it less and my foot didn't twitch. I mean, it wasn't that I was reporting feeling it less. Like I really felt less pain. Um, and it's because I created expectations for what green and red meant. And, uh, and when expectation didn't meet reality, my brain stepped in and released drugs in order to bring down that pain so it fit what they expected, or at least close mm -hmm. to what it expected. And that's what's at the heart of a lot of these placebo effects. It's your brain trying to get expectations to meet reality. I think of the brain as sort of a bureaucrat. He's got paperwork to fill out. And he doesn't care what happened. He just wants to make sure the paperwork down the line. fits. <laughs> exactly. Placebo effect can be so powerful that some patients know that they're being given a placebo, not in a trial, in actual treatments. They know it's not a real drug, but it's going to make them feel better anyway. This is one of the most fascinating parts of, of the, 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 the book, and there's a lot of fascinating parts in this. It's such a wonderful rabbit hole, and I, I recommend going down it. Um, but there's, there's sort of the easiest way to describe it is there's two types of placebos that I think we're, we're coming around to. And one is a conscious placebo, and this is um, very much based in storytelling and you know the, the images that I conjure when I'm telling you about this thing I'm about to do to you. Uh, and that's a very powerful, important uh, side of things. But there's also the unconscious placebo, and this is – Often classical conditioning. This is all the times you've taken a pill throughout your life and had, had, had them make you feel better. And that creates these expectations that you can't stop. So if I give you a pill and I say, this is a placebo, there's nothing in this, it is inert. Um, maybe not you, but a substantial number of people will take that pill and feel better because they, you can't stop that unconscious process. Your, your body's already going. And that's, that's, um, there's some really exciting work that's sort of looking at separating uh, the conscious and unconscious placebos and where do they meet and where do they diverge. And, uh, and Karen Jensen's doing that work. And it's, uh, it's a really interesting question because uh, it explains a lot. I mean, I have a lot of people who I've talked to say, um, look, you know, I'm not I'm not gullible. I don't go in for this kind of stuff. But, you know, this this supplement really, really works. And it's like, 
Well, first of all, yes, you are gullible. I'm gullible. We're all gullible creatures. Right. And second of all, like a lot of these things, like you, just because you're rational and you have all, you know, and you're very skeptical, doesn't mean that these things won't work on you because some of this is unconscious and you can't stop it. Right. And to be truly rational, you have to be able to acknowledge and accept that you're going to fall for it because you're wired that way. I mean, right. like you said, it's, a, it's almost Pavlovian. Maybe it's completely Pavlovian. I've been taking pills whenever I get a headache and, you know, for, for a long, long time. So if I go through the act of putting the pill in my mouth and swallowing it, even if there's no actual aspirin or ibuprofen in it, just that act might help me get over the headache. Exactly. And this is this happens to me all the time. Um, I mean, Kevin, growing up in Christian science, I remember the first time I took Advil and it was like, it was like doing the hard drugs, you know, <laughs> it was like, you know, wow, I'm doing, you know, this is like, you know, medicine. Um, and I, and, and since then I've, you know, I've, I've, I really have a sort of inflated, you know, uh, perception of how these things work. But when I, you know, I got a headache and I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, I'm so much pain. I need it. I need something. And I go into the medicine cabinet, I take out a pill and I, get my water and I put it in my mouth and I, I swallow it. I have this like, oh, thank God. You know, I don't know if this happens to you. Uh, you know, when I, when I ask people in, in meetings, you know, whether or not this happens to them, you have a half people say this happens to them where they oh, thank God. And, um, and what's interesting about that, I always sort of thought there was a coating on the pill that like gave you immediate relief. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean, that, does, that pill doesn't kick in for 20 minutes. Right. Like what you're feeling is a placebo response. Yeah. And, and it's important to remember that placebos, yeah, I talk a lot about alternative medicine in the book and, uh, and faith healing, but it's also on top of uh, active medicines. You know, and you have placebos. Placebos also are attached to medicines that, you know, that, affect your body, and you have the placebo on top of that. And that has created a lot of confusion and also a lot of opportunities. Going off on a tangent just a little bit, but I think I'm interested, and I think other people might be, uh, did your family leave Christian Science, or did just you leave, and what was the precipitating factor? Um, so it's interesting. Christian Science has been uh, – well, they're not allowed to actually take uh, – take um, census information for how many people are in the church, but there's a, definitely a sense that Christian science has been shrinking, and, and I think it's, my family's a pretty good uh, reflection of that. Um, all the kids in my family uh, left Christian science for a number of reasons. Partly, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's committing, you know, you have to really be committed to the religion in order to not take medicine. Um, it's restricting in a lot of ways, you know, alcohol and things like that. Um, and, uh, and once the kids had left, um, uh, I think my mom sort of was not was not as drawn to it. Um, and it's hard when, you know, when everyone else is out. And my dad still, I think, holds the religion. I think he still really loves uh, the teachings. But um, but they've you know, people they've had to have surgeries. I mean, you know, people get older and they need they need things taken care of, and that has been a challenge. And my dad's had a few surgeries, and my mom's had some surgeries, and. Um, it's it's challenging to weigh these things, and this is this is this is not just in Christian Science. This is across um, a lot of society now. When you know, how do you balance these you know natural treatments with uh, with going to the doctor and getting something done? Mm-hmm. And I think it's uh, something a lot of people can understand. Christian Science is probably maybe one of the more extreme versions of that. We'll be right back after this. Hi, Brian and Andrea here from Base Pairs, the podcast of Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. And those fitter families competitions we were talking about at the top of the show, they were part of a dark time in America when the public became enamored with the pseudoscience of eugenics. Now, with new gene editing tools like CRISPR being used on the human genome, 
we risk repeating history. Search for Base Pairs wherever you get your podcasts to learn more. Now more with Eric Vance. Let's talk about some of the other uh, things that you discuss in the book, uh, one of which is nocebos as opposed to placebos. So tell us what nocebos are and what's going on there. Uh, a placebo uh, means I shall please, you know, and it's when you expect something good to happen to you and it does, or, you know, it affects your body in a good way. A nocebo means I shall harm, and that's when you accept, expect something bad to happen to you and indeed it does. And they're fascinating. They're very hard to study. Uh, placebo, I, in the book I talk a lot about uh, placebo effects on depressed patients and, and, uh, and um, Parkinson's and these different things and, and pain. Uh, and the problem with nocebos is you can't go up to a Parkinson's patient give them a pill and say, this is going to make your Parkinson's worse. You just, I mean, that would just be terrible. And you can't do that with depression. You can't give someone a depression-heightening pill. Um, you can do it with pain. And so when you talk about nocebos, really a lot of the work has been focused on pain, kind of like the, the light experiment I was telling you about where they go turn on the different lights. Um, because it's, um, and people will, will, will talk about feeling more pain or feeling less pain, and, and you can condition people to feel more pain even though they're not getting any more shock. And that's really where a lot of the research has happened, but it's, it's a fascinating, um, really, uh, there's a lot in there that I think we're going to be learning about in the next few years. And one, one of the things that I took a, away from that is nocebos, up, up until now, I think I can say with some confidence that nocebos are more powerful than placebos. Um, they are easier to, uh, to create. For a placebo, I have to do that training thing where I condition you. Uh, for a nocebo, all I have to say is this is really going to hurt. Get, brace yourself. This is really going to hurt. And, and I can create a, an enhanced feeling of pain in you because we are wired for fear. We are wired to, you know, to be cautious. So that, that's the one thing. And the other thing is, is when you, like, imagine that experiment I told you where you got the red and the, the green and you go back and forth. And then imagine you mixed it up. And, and so, um, so they no longer corresponded and you're sort of throwing it, throwing me for a loop. Well, when you do that, what you see is the placebo effect disappears. Mm -hmm. But if you have a nocebo effect, that continues much longer because we remember this, the fear of more pain more than we remember relief from, you know, or less pain. And so these things are very, uh, very powerful and they're very, um, uh, they're very, you can't, they're very hard to shake. So the question is, how does this apply to other elements of our life? And, and a lot of people have looked at, um, at uh, diseases that that don't seem to have an obvious uh, an obvious um, uh, mechanism, and and you know, is there a nocebo content? You know, fibromyalgia or uh... a neuralgia. I mean, people talk about uh, uh, um, being uh, you know sensitive to uh, electromagnetic fields and uh, and oh, what is it, wind turbine syndrome. And the important thing to remember, I think, when we get into that discussion, is that these things are real. Nocebos are real. Uh, this is. This is not a way of saying that these kinds of diseases, you know, aren't real or don't deserve to be taken seriously or, God forbid, you know, don't deserve health care. Like these um, – and that's a lesson in the book is just because it's emanating from your brain doesn't make it any less real. Right. The pain is is definitely real. Yeah. The and origin crippling. of the pain is right. what we're talking about. And it gets down to like how do you how do you attack these things? Like how do you – you know, if someone has fibromyalgia, they can't – 
leave their home and their life is, is and I've talked to a lot of people who are struggling with this, um, it is a serious disease. But we're talking about like where does it, you know, where does it begin and, and, and how can you how can you start to address it? And, and these are the questions that get really interesting, very tricky. The other direction I go is talking about a superstition and um, and uh, and even even curses. I get cursed by a witch doctor at one point just to see how it affects my expectations. And these things can have powerful effects in your body. I mean, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that people can die believing that uh, believing that they've somehow been cursed or they've somehow been uh, you know that, that there's this extreme nocebo um, that that's hanging over them and and this is um, it's fascinating and, and it's kind of fun in the book but these these can also be very serious uh, serious issues and they can cause mass hysteria and all kinds of things let's talk about hypnosis a little bit people are fascinated by yeah. that and you talk about that in the book mm-hmm. I um <clears throat> I uh, I think hypnosis is one of the most crapped on fascinating fields in the history of science. Um, I have never seen something so interesting and with so much potential be so denigrated by scientists. Um, and, it, and it's fascinating. You know, I, I trace it in the book all the way back to, you know, uh, Mesmer and sort of, uh, and Mesmer sort of is at the heart of a lot of this stuff, both placebos and hypnosis. Um, and for a while, in, in the 1800s, it was, it was really a very serious, it was kind of all of psychology. It was a very big, important thing uh, that people took very seriously. And, and um, I don't know, have you ever read the book Dracula? No, the Bram Stoker original, yeah. though. Yeah, the original. I, I mean, maybe, well, maybe if people have seen the movie, they might know that, you know, in the Bram Stoker original, um, which, you know, came out in the late 1800s, uh, it was actually the heroes who used hypnosis in order to find the vampire. Um, by the time Dracula came out on the silver screen, it was the vampire who used hypnosis to, like, lure in his victims. And I, that time period, sort of that early part of the century, was really where hypnosis took a turn for the worst. And it was, like, things like Trilby and all these different, uh, all these different uh, very high-profile sort of uh, uh, um, sort of lousy press that the hypnosis got that really— and it was also— um, uh, you know, several very high, uh, highly respected psychologists sort of turned away from it, and it really just took a turn for, for the worse, and it never recovered. One of the things that was a part of this was people became convinced that you could, um, well, you could sexually assault women using it, and that you could get people to rob banks. And there was this one guy, a very high-profile case at the time, where this guy uh, was hypnotized and then robbed a bank. And it was like you can hypnotize people to rob banks. Like it's 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 out of control. Let me guess. He had been a bank robber. He was a professional bank robber. Yes. <laughs> and no one mentioned it. That was a great defense to say, "Hey, I got hypnotized." You know, without mentioning, "Hey, I've also robbed you know ten other banks." <laughs> so, but this is I mean, this captured the imagination of of you know of the world, and and suddenly hypnosis became this dangerous thing, and it never really recovered from that. But there are a few scientists. Um, working today, who who see this incredible value that's in there, and they're and they're you know despite all of the snickers, they're willing to look at this. And uh, one of this guy, one of these guys, uh, David Patterson at um, at University of Washington, he uh, he had this case where he was um, this he was working in a burn unit, a burn uh, uh, at, in a hospital, and uh, he had this patient who. Uh, he had these, these like full body burns and, and, and the way it's been described to me, there is no pain that is worse than a full body burn. I mean, I've had women who have had children say like childbirth is nothing compared to the kind of pain that you get with these large burns. It's insane. Um, and he was really struggling and, uh, and 
<clears throat> David asked him, you know, can I try to hypnotize you? He says, you can try, but I can't be hypnotized. And he said, okay, I want you to relax. He says, no, I'm not going to relax. He says, okay, I want you to get tense. He says, no, I'm going to get relaxed. And so he finally gets this guy to sort of relax. Turns out this guy just happens to be highly hypnotizable. Mm-hmm. And, and this, is, this is no, like it's, you can't really guess who's hypnotizable or not. But it turns out this guy is, and so he goes right under. And, um, and they were able to remove all of his bandages and scrub out all of his wounds. And, and this guy, he wasn't... He wasn't asleep. He wasn't, I mean, he was awake, he was conscious, but he couldn't feel the nurses scrubbing out his wounds. Now, this is something we need to understand. Like, this is not something you toss out and just say, oh, well, the brain's crazy. This is, this is, this could be a tremendous asset for something. So, uh, people like David Patterson and a few others have, have doggedly sort of tried to understand hypnosis and, and, and tried to see, uh, how it can be used in our lives and how it's how it's functioning and and in the book I talk a lot about sort of this process and I often think of um, you know placebo as sort of a it's a suggestion for the future you know um, it's a suggestion about uh, you know if you take this this thing will happen to you and if that's true hypnosis is kind of a suggestion for the present it's um, it's you know you're walking through a field and the pain just evaporates off your body and uh, and it's not the same mechanism. Um, there's a lot of things that are different between the two things, but there is that thematic um, connection. Um, I've been, I've seen a lot of medical situations. Uh, I've, I've watched surgeries. I've, uh, you know, I, I watched them take blood out of my arm. It, it doesn't bother me at all. I was visiting a friend in a burn ward, and I almost passed out. Yeah. I had to go outside and sit and get fresh air for a while before I could come back in and and sit with him and talk to him as, as he blithely talked about what was going on yeah. with him and, and the grafts that he would be getting. And, you know, I was looking at his exposed skin and it, it's, it's incredibly intense. We, we think about, I mean, we think about, you know, uh, morphine is something you can just like give and it'll fix everything, but not everyone actually responds the same to morphine. Yeah. And a lot of these patients, uh, you, you give them, you know, the maximum amount of morphine and they're just, this doesn't make yeah. it any better. And this, this is what's at the heart of the need to understand hypnosis is we need, we need to get away, especially with these kinds of cases from just dumping morphine, it doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. So uh, let's also talk about the false memories that you talk about in the book. So if uh, if um, placebos are a suggestion for the future and uh, hypnosis is a suggestion for the present, then uh, I see false memories as a suggestion for the past. And this is a way, and and it's a f- and, and this is <clears throat> where I, I kind of took some liberties and I, I took a little chance with the book because this isn't necessarily connected in the same way that some of the other elements are, but it thematically, it feels very much the same. And a lot of the scientists who study placebos privately afterwards would tell me, you know, look, I've just been fascinated with false memories and wondering if there's some sort of connection there. And, um, you know, you know, like I said, we are fallible, malleable creatures. And, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, these promises of the future. Well, false memories, you're, mal- you're, you're changing what has already happened. Um, and it turns out that false memories, uh, and this has been written about a lot, um, you know, it's, it's tremendously easy to take something that you believe is, is, is true and, uh, and tweak it. Because when you're remembering something, you're not actually remembering the thing. You're remembering the last time you remembered it. Some of our best memories tend to be things you haven't thought of in a long time. Um, and I have a vivid memory of, uh, of, um, I start the book off with the healing that I had in Christian Science as a young baby. 
and I have a vivid memory of what that night was like when I was I was sort of passing away and I, I had this you know this very dramatic healing. I obviously don't remember the real thing. First of all, I remember seeing myself there, which isn't necessarily a, a, an indication that it's not true memory. But I remember seeing myself. And second of all, like the wallpaper's wrong, uh, all the furniture's wrong, and uh, let's be honest, I was a baby. Like there's no way I remember this stuff. But it's you know I I could easily. I could tell you all the details in that room. And, and this is the way memory is. Memory fills in blanks. And, uh, and you can use that. Um, and I, I talk a lot about Elizabeth Loftus, who's a scientist who has really pioneered this field. Um, and, uh, and she's sort of been able to input all these memories, my favorite of which is uh, um, during this sort of memory war, she did this study where she was able to convince people that they met Bugs Bunny at uh, Disney World. And these rich memories of meeting Bugs Bunny, shaking his hand, he gave him a lollipop or whatever you have. Well, Bugs Bunny's not at Disney World. I mean, he's Warner Brothers, two different companies. Right. He, can't, he can't. He can't be there. And uh, and that was sort of her way of saying, you know, these are these really are fake memories. These, yeah. these can't be real. Right. And um, and it does though. There, you know, in, in the book, uh, I, I profile some people. A, a woman who um, had some terrible. Uh, uh, well. Was had a memory come to her through uh, through hypnosis that uh, that a terrible terrible injustice had been done to her when she was much younger and then and she lived with that and then she realized later on that it was actually a false memory so she she didn't have the memory and then she did have the memory and then she realized it was a false memory it's a very confusing thing to try and grapple with um, and it can and there are people in prison right now because of false memories there are people who are suffering, who've been estranged from their families. And it comes down to hypnosis a little bit. Hypnosis is a, is a wonderful tool, uh, and it's important for pain relief and a lot of things, but it's not, a t- it's not a tool for accessing memories. You really want to keep those things separate. Am I right in remembering that there have been uh, studies where researchers have been able to implant the equivalent of a false memory into mice? Yes. Yeah, that was a, that's a, there's... Um, uh, there's a really great uh, study looking at and, and some of the, the neurobiologists involved in that and in, in being able to um, to implant uh, memories and then and one of the the goals in in some of this research is trying to separate false memories from real memories and uh, this was some or uh, from regular conditioning right right and then also can we remove memories you know is there a way to um, to and this this might be one of the, the positive sides. I mean, can we use our, the study of false memories to affect PTSD, right. for example? And that and that was sort of uh, it's a very early experiment out of Harvard, I think. Um, and it's uh, but that's what we're getting at. Can we maybe not? It's not you know like erase memories, but maybe take away some of their emotional power, Attention, destructive yeah. power. The other thing that, that ties into at least my experience and some of the rest of the book is. Um, uh, you know, false memories don't have to be completely false. They can also be sort of exaggerated. And uh, I went in my community growing up, people would often talk about these like instantaneous healings. Like, you know, they, they, they had this revelation and the pain just disappeared. The things disappeared. Oftentimes, in my experience, it, it's usually not instantaneous. It's sort of a process. But when you remember it, you remember it as instantaneous. You remember it as being this like, because we, we like to create narratives that make sense and are more dramatic. And this is throughout false memories. We, we see that they, they lean towards more dramatic, you know, I, I, I tried this pill and immediately I felt better and what that does and in, in, in addition to uh, making you buy the pill again uh, it also creates more expectation for the future 
So the next time you take that, you will be, you know, you are primed to have even more healing. So there are some interesting connections with other chapters in the book. I mean, uh, belief and expectation, I mean, I, I, I talk a lot about placebos, but we're really talking about expectation. And we're talking about, you know, this, this sort of prediction machine of your brain. And it, and it affects so many different parts of our lives. And so the, the last couple of chapters, I do talk about, I talk about sex, I talk about lifestyle, I talk about food, and uh, all of these things are, you know, athletics, all these things are also affected by these beliefs. Um, my favorite thing is, uh, you know, when... Um, when Viagra is first being tested, of course, you know, I talk a lot about stuff that does not beat the placebo, and this is very fascinating. Well, of course, Viagra did beat the placebo. It's an effective drug, you know, and you look at, you know, the the, the, the rates would be like, you know, 40% and, you know, with, you know, uh, with Viagra and then like, you know, 25 or 30% with, you know, the placebo. And it's like, okay, well, it works. But what you never think about is who are those 25, 30% people? And these, some of these people have like, serious, you know, diseases that, 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 that make it impossible for them to get an erection. And yet, you know, and, and that when you actually break down that placebo, but there, there were people, it wasn't just the, 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 the lighter cases, there were also some very serious cases who were able to have sex again um, because they've been given a placebo pill. And while they weren't, it wasn't as effective as a Viagra, you do have to wonder what's happening with some of those people. And, and, and this pops up in a lot of different ways. Like if you give someone an MIT pen, they tend to do better on tests than if you give them a regular pen. Um, there's a lot of different... Oh, wait, you mean like a Harvard pen. Right. <laughs> yeah, Harvard pens pen. don't, don't yeah. help at all. Columbia. <laughs> um, and like, you know, and so there's all these different ways of suggestion. You know, your, your brain is constantly looking to see what's going on and, 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 and how it, you know, how it should be responding to what's about to happen and there's all these ways that you can sort of tweak it um you know there's famous wine studies they call them marketing placebos where you know you you uh you know you taste a wine that's more expensive and it tastes better and and we often like laugh at people like that like oh look how silly they are but there's a distinct possibility that it actually does taste better that the price of the wine actually affects the way you experience the um the flavor and and that's something to be taken seriously i think you know, I mean, this is not nothing. Right. So when you're selling something, you might want to sell it for $15 rather than $10 uh, because the user may have a more positive experience having purchased it at 15 rather than 10 That is That is completely reasonable. Um, I, I think we're not, I mean, I, I'm very curious to see where this research goes, but, uh, you know, I mean, everyone always talks about Coke and Pepsi, you know, and, and Pepsi, you uh, uh, regularly wins uh, taste tests um, when they're blind, mm -hmm. and Coke regularly wins taste tests when they're not blind, and and it's it's uh, it's silly for us to think that it's that we're just you know that the people are lying or saying what they want to expect. I mean, it, it it's possible that Coke really does taste better when you know what it is. I'll be back in a moment. Hey all, Brian here from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. And I'm Andrea. Base Pairs is the podcast about the power of genetic information. And with that power comes responsibility. In our newest episode, we speak with experts like Jennifer Doudna, co-creator of the revolutionary gene editing tool, to find out how to avoid the unscientific traps that gave rise to the American eugenics movement. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts.
That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can read neuroscientist Doug Field's article on the search for understanding why electroconvulsive therapy, more commonly known as shock therapy, can actually work. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.